Parshat, Parshat Vayetze. So, uh, the beginning of the Parsha, before I begin with the sources, the beginning of the Parsha deals with a vision. Yaakov Avinu has a vision. It's a vision, we're all familiar with it. Sulam Mutzav Artsa, he sees a, a giant ladder. Um, it's, it's fantastic, isn't it? You know, it's like a, a fantasy image of a ladder which is placed on the ground and it reaches all the way to the heavens, to the sky. I mean, obviously we understand that the sky isn't heaven, but figuratively speaking, it reaches to the heaven. There's angels coming down, there's angels going up, etc., etc. And God appears to him, as it were, during this vision, has a conversation with him and reassures him that everything is going to be okay. His life is going to be okay. God is at his side. He needs worry about nothing because God is going to take not just care of him, but good care of him. Wouldn't we all like to receive an assurance like that? I mean, that you can take that to the bank, right? God, it, we're not talking about a politician who's telling you that everything's going to be marvelous so that you vote for him. God tells you he is going to take care of you. That's what happened to Yaakov Avinu. That's what happened. He sleeps in this place and in the vision, God tells him everything is going to be okay. You wake up from a vision like that, how are you going to feel? Euphoric, right? I mean, there's no question about it. You're going to feel on top of the world. It's the most um, incredible moment of your life. I want to now read you the two psukim that occur at the beginning of the parsha of Ayetze, describing Yaakov Avinu immediately after he wakes up from this incredible vision. Vayikatz Yaakov Mishnosoi. Yaakov woke up from his sleep. Vayoymer, and he said, Ochein yesh Hashem b'mokayim hazeh. Indeed, God is in this place. V'anoichi loyadati, and I didn't know. Okay, so so far, he seems to be acknowledging the fact that God appeared to him and that it was an incredible moment, even though he didn't know it was going to happen. And perhaps he would have planned differently had he known that God was in this place. He's at least acknowledging that God is there and that this moment occurred and the vision is real. Now, the next posuk starts off confoundingly. Vayira, and he was frightened. Vayoymar, and he said, How awesome is this place? But the way Manora can also mean how scary is this place? How frightening is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And he was frightened. Having encountered God, having come into close proximity with God during the course of this incredible vision, what's his reaction? It's not joy. It is not euphoria. It is fear. It is anxiety. It is quite negative. Okay, do you understand that? I can't understand it. On the face of it, it makes absolutely no sense. So that's at the beginning of this parsha. At the beginning of Vayishlach, we have another incident where 
the, uh, where the Psukim record Yaakov's fright. This is in chapter... Um, so I'm going to come back to source number two. Chapter three. Sorry, source number three. Chapter 32. Lamed Beis Posuk Ches. Vayira Yaakov Ma'od. When did this occur? He's about to encounter his brother Esau. He's about to meet up with Esau after 20 years of absence. He has been in the house of Lovon. Actually, it's more than that because he was for 14 years. He was... In the, um, in the yeshiva of Shem and Aver. It's a whole other discussion. What do you learn in the yeshiva of Shem and Aver? Um, there's no consensus about that. But he was, he's been away from home for 34 years. Now he returns and he's about to encounter his brother, meet up with him, the man who he was um, sure was going to kill him. And Vayira Yaakov, Yaakov was very frightened. Not just very frightened, Yaakov, but you're a Yaakov ma'oid. He was exceedingly frightened. Vayetzer loy, and he was very distressed. Vayachatz esa'om asheitoi, he divided the people who were with him. Vesatzoin, vesabokov agmalim, the sheep, uh, the cattle, and the camels. Lishnei machnois into two separate camps. He strategized. Um, as to how he was going to deal with the Aesop situation. One of the tactics he used was he divided the camps into two. What stimulated these tactics? What prompted him to behave in this way? The, the Pasuk says, Vayira Yaakov Ma'oid. He was extremely frightened. Vayetzer And he was distressed. Now look at source number two. What had he just heard from God in the vision of the ladder with the angels going up and down. Look at source number two. Says God to him. Behold, I am with you. And I will guard you wherever you go. I will restore you to this land. For I will not forsake you. Ad asher imasisi. Until I have done what I have said to you that I would do. If you got an a assurance like that, an assurance like that from God, how would you feel? Would you feel Vayira? Or would you be Basimcha? What is it that he's frightened of? What could he possibly be scared of? Both at the moment he woke up from the vision. And 20 years later, when he's about to meet up with Esau again. Why does it say, Vayira, Vayitzar? Why is he so scared? So the fact is that this is a point that's picked up by the Medrash, but not in a way that you would ever imagine. So you would think that if the Medrash picks up this detail, that the Medrash is going to somehow mitigate it and say, you don't quite understand what Vayira means, and we're going to explain to you what the Yira was. That's not what the Medrash says. The Medrash presents it in a completely different context. It's so counterintuitive. You've got to look at the Medrash. It's in source number four. It's Bereshis Rabbah. And the Medrash says as follows, So he, 
the Medrash focuses on that Pasuk in Vayishlach. Rapinchas Beshem Rabbi Reuven. Rapinchas said in the name of Rabbi Reuven, Shnei Bnei Adam Hivtichon HaKadosh Baruchu Benisyoru. There were two people at the dawn of Jewish history who were reassured by God, and nevertheless, they were extremely frightened. They were afraid. One of them is the choice one of the patriarchs. And the other one is the choice one of the prophets. Let's go through it. Who is the chosen one, the choicest one of the patriarchs? Jacob. And yet he was still afraid. Jacob became extremely frightened. So what is the situation? How is it that he is so frightened? Nevertheless, he became frightened. Despite the fact that God had reassured him that everything was going to be okay, he was very frightened. Would you say that the Medrash is presenting this negatively? Certainly not. The Medrash is telling you that this is something to be lauded. This is something to be praised. That the chosen one, the choicest of all the patriarchs, was a man called Jacob. And despite receiving a reassurance by God, he became frightened after he'd been reassured. Similarly, Habachur Shebenavim, the chosen, the choicest one of the prophets, Moshe Shenemar, Lule Moshe Bechirai. So we know that Moshe had this elevated status among the prophets of being a choice prophet. Nevertheless, I'm going to be with you. God said to him, Fear not. I am with you at all times. But at the end, he still became frightened in um, anticipation of his encounter with Oig Melech Haboshon. God said to Moses, Do not be frightened of him. Don't be scared of Oig. You never tell somebody, Don't be scared, unless you know that they are frightened. So we see that the two greatest people of the Torah, in a sense, right? So we have um, Yaakov Avinu, who is the choicest of the three of us, or as I put it in the title of this shir, the best of three, right? Is frightened despite the reassurance by God. Similarly, Moshe Rabbeinu is assured by God, and nevertheless, he's frightened um, but he is known as the choicest, the most superior of all the prophets that have ever lived. We're not going to deal with Moshe today, although um, by implication, everything we say about Yaakov Avinu is also going to apply to Moshe Rabbeinu. The question is, although let's, I want to address one particular nekuda, and through that answer the question. The nekuda is, this idea that Yaakov, that Jacob, was the Bechir Ha'avos, was the choicest of all the Avos. You know that uh, we're always told as parents, you're not allowed to have a favorite, right? 
What, why are you not allowed to have a favorite? Because if you have a favorite, somehow it's demeaning to the others. So if you have a bunch of children and one of your children is the favorite, the other children may come to resent it. Now, I know it doesn't quite apply to the situation of the patriarchs, but surely if we are to look at the story of the patriarchs, we're not meant to compare them and say, I like this one better than that one. That doesn't really sound right. Avraham has his qualities. Yitzchak has his qualities. Yaakov has his qualities. What do you mean, Bechir HaOvois? Maybe in some area of specialty, you can say Yaakov Avinu was better than Avraham and Yitzchak. But surely Avraham was better than Yaakov in some other aspect. By identifying Yaakov Avinu as the Bechir HaAvot, as the choice one of the Avot, Somehow it's demeaning, I mean not somehow, it's definitely, it sounds demeaning towards Avraham and Yitzchak. It sounds like you're saying they're not quite as good, they didn't make the grade, only Yaakov made the grade, he is the best of all of them, the best of three. So really that's the point I want to address today. I saw many, many Mepharshim who discuss this, um, and particularly those who have a Kabbalistic leaning, but I wanted to somehow approach this in a more rational direction, although we're going to see that we're going to dabble a little bit in Kabbalah today. Um, generally speaking, I like to, when I present a subject, a topic, in the Shir, in the Parsha Shir, I want to address it from the perspective of not speaking in the esoteric or the spiritual. I want to address it from a practical perspective. Yaakov Avinu is referred to here as the Bechir Ha'avot, why? And how does that make any sense? How am I going to explain that to my children? And I can't use Kabbalah to explain it to my children. Okay? So we're going to, the first person we're going to look at is Rabbi Eliyahu Blumenzweig. He's the Rosh Hashiva at uh, the Yeshiva in Yerucham. And he really poses the most direct question on the Medrash and on the Psukim that we read earlier, which is, Bahavana Peshuta. If you're going to really look at this with an open mind, the way you're going to feel about Yaakov's reaction to his vision and by him feeling fright and anxiety is that there was a lack of faith. If God tells you everything is going to be okay and suddenly you're still frightened, that means you don't believe God, which means that you don't believe in God. So the real elephant in the room here is that Yaakov Avinu, by being referred to as Vayira, and later on in Parshas Yishlach as Vayira and Vayetzer, means that there he is lacking in faith. Bifgam choser bitachon Hashem. Somehow there's a lack of faith when it comes to believing in God. He doesn't, it's almost as if he doesn't take God's reassurances seriously. Continues Rabbi Blumenzweig. He quotes the Sfat Emet. Sfat Emet was the Gera Rebbe. He writes extensively on the Parsha by year. And we've quoted him many times before in the Shir. Here Rabbi Blumenzweig quotes him and he says as follows, Yesh po pshat yoter chashuv. Yesh po roved yoter amok. 
We can actually understand this, if we want to delve into this properly, we can understand this from a totally alternative perspective and make sense of it in such a way that not only is it a, not a display of faithlessness, it is the deepest possible demonstration of Jacob's faith. It's the exact opposite of our um, intuitive understanding of the Pesukim. This is what he says. Shamati mi pimori zikeni. I heard from my grandfather. Lahafli b'shevach inyan zeh. The truth is, this is the most praiseworthy. This is, if you're looking for an ideal picture of who Jacob was, this incident and this concept presents him in the way that we can truly understand his greatness and his, uh, um, and his deep faith. Yaakov. As a result that Jacob understood, Yaakov Avinu, if it would be left up to his own devices, or in the normal course of events, he was in grave danger. In normal circumstances, he's caught in a situation where he's running away from his brother who wants to kill him, and he's running into the arms of his uncle who certainly wants to rip him off and eventually is going to want to kill him. He's not in an ideal situation. How is he going to survive? On his own two feet? Highly unlikely. He's never going to survive the ordeal he's going to have to face. And even though, without any question, he relied on the fact that God would take good care of him, but nevertheless, his attitude towards his situation didn't change one iota as a result of the reassurance from God. Why? Because he knew that in normal circumstances he would never survive. We're going to see this explained in a moment. It's an incredible chiddish. It's brilliant. And therefore, he did what he needed to do in the case of Esav, about to encounter Esav, in terms of having to pray, and he um, did all the things, the strategies that he employed in order to avoid devastation in the face of impending doom. You might think that God, having reassured him, he wouldn't do those things. Quite the reverse, because he knew that in ordinary circumstances he faced certain death, and therefore he did all the things he needed to do despite God's reassurance, that he would have done had God not reassured him. In other words, no part of his um, normal reaction changed simply because God reassured him. Says Rabbi Blumenzweig, Bederech Klal, in ordinary circumstances, Adam Ragil, an ordinary person, you and me, right? We're ordinary people. So somebody tells you, that, uh, I, I don't know, you're going to go in a car today and there's going to be a terrible car accident and your car is going to be involved, but you should know that you're not going to suffer even a scratch. I guarantee you, you're not going to suffer a scratch. You believe that person, okay? Maybe you don't believe the person. I'm just giving you an example. 
Nothing is going to go wrong. Lots of people are going to be affected by this situation. You're going to escape totally unscathed. Okay? A normal person getting that reassurance and he's 100% guaranteed that that reassurance is the way it's going to turn out. How is he going to react? How's that person going to react? You are absolutely assured of salvation. Nothing is going to happen to you. You're not going to do anything to mitigate your circumstances. Why bother making any effort? You're not going to continue to pray that everything's going to go okay. If you know 100% that everything's going to go okay, this is the way it's going to turn out. Nothing is going to go wrong. Why, why would you make any effort? Why would you bother wasting your time regarding a matter that has already been determined? Nothing is going to go wrong. So why would you waste your time? You may as well do something else. Everything's going to be okay. That's the normal reaction of a normal person in such circumstances. Why do we do anything in any circumstances where we feel that something might go wrong? Because we want to remedy the situation. We want to make sure that the thing is not going to go wrong. And we, we believe that through our efforts to mitigate whatever could go wrong, that that thing isn't going to go wrong, whether it's through practical efforts, the dividing the camp type efforts, or whether it's through prayer and spiritual activity, somehow our, the way we think is that through our efforts, everything's going to be okay. Why do we do it? Because we know that potentially, if we don't do it, things are going to go wrong. But if you know that everything's going to go okay, why would you bother making those efforts? There's no point. Everything's going to be okay anyway, whether you do the thing or whether you don't do the thing. You want to influence matters as they unfold, to make sure they unfold in the way that you want them to unfold. And you imagine, your, the whole idea behind it is that you know that through your efforts you can change things for the good, right? So you can make the difference so that things don't go wrong for you, either to improve matters or to make sure that they go well, okay? So that is the, if you want to understand the rationale behind why people do things in order to influence the circumstances of their life, it's to ensure that things go right. You put a seatbelt on because you want to make sure that if something happens while you're in your car, that you've got your seatbelt on and you're protected. You want to make sure that your airbags are going to engage, right? You're certainly not going to get into a car where there's no seatbelt and no airbags because you know that an accident could happen. If you know 100% that an accident is never going to happen in your car, you wouldn't have a seatbelt and you wouldn't have airbags because what's the point, okay? That's, that's point number one. Adam hamuftach shadvarim atidim lehistader letova. Somebody who is assured that things are going to turn out the right way, he can see with great clarity the way everything is going to turn out exactly the way it's meant to. The natural inclination of such a person is not to bother to do anything to change 
the circumstances in which he finds himself, because why bother? He's, he's totally cognizant of the fact that everything is going to be successful and nothing is going to go wrong. But there's another perspective. There's another way of looking at it. And one which, unfortunately, we are less and less familiar with. It's almost like we have um, a blindness to it. We are all in complete denial about what I'm about to say, okay? The Tzad Sheni is, Actually, it's possible that in such circumstances you can suddenly recognize how, in, how finite you are, how infinitesimal you are in terms of influencing circumstances in your life. Actually, what is your true ability to influence the outcome of any given situation? You know, there's this horrible expression which I've heard over the years, people who try and rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic. You ever heard that before? You know, this idea that somehow if we just do something, everything's going to be okay. Whereas really in the back of your mind, you know that the ship is sinking and what you're doing has very, very little influence on the outcome of the events that are going to happen anyway. That's the other side of the equation. To what extent do you truly ever influence the outcome of any given event? I haven't gone sort of in a spiritual direction with this, but what he's trying to say is that there is this battle, this this human condition where we feel we're in control and it's hubris because in reality we're not in control but we want to feel we're in control and very often the things that we do do give us that impression so it feeds into that hubris that we are somehow in control but in reality if we reflect on the way anyone's life unfolds we know that even if we're in control of little details, broadly speaking, how much in control are we ever? The truth is, if you're truly reflecting on the way your life, you know, the things go on in your life, you realize, yes, you can make the changes that you need to make to mitigate, to improve, but ultimately, the ultimate, the end result is often out of your hands. There's too many moving parts and you're not in control of all of those moving parts. And in, in those circumstances, your influence on the outcome of events is very limited. So those are the two perspectives. The first perspective is, is presented from the point of view of, I know the way things are going to turn out. Will I bother making any effort? And the second one is, what's the, what's the point of making any effort because ultimately, my, the tr my true influence on the outcome is so limited, okay? So that's the two perspectives that Rabbi Blumenzweig is presenting. Im kach hem hadvarim, he continues. This is at the top of page two. Im kach hem hadvarim. Madua mamshich Yaakov ba'avodato. If that's the way we are to understand it, why indeed did Yaakov Avinu continue to do anything? What was the point? Near eh, 
it would appear shadavar taluy bimnia la'avoda that actually his um, devotion to God had nothing whatsoever to do with the circumstances he found himself in, but had much more to do with the fact that he wanted to be in the service of God. Yaakov Avinu had one focus and one focus only. I am a servant of God. Notwithstanding my ability to change things or, my, or the necessity for me to be even trying to change things, my role on this earth is to be a servant of God. And this, says Rabbi Blumenzweig, is the way the Svat Emet presents it as he continues to explain. If you want to understand why he was the Bechir Havot, what made him so special, why he's the choice one. How many people can say that? It was all about doing the service of God and not to influence God, to change anything that was going to happen. I'm a servant of God because I'm a servant of God. Of course I want God to do the things I want him to do and I'm davening to him and I want things to go right. But ultimately, that's not what this is about. I'm here to daven because that's my duty. I'm here to make sure that God hears my prayers because I'm a servant of God and then God is going to decide the way things are going to turn out. The reason why Yaakov Ovinu, Jacob, saw the necessity for him to continue to pray and to be a servant of God, even in circumstances where he knew the outcome, is because it's all about God. It's not about him. Why are you praying to God? You know, they say there's no such thing as an atheist in the foxhole, right? Why does the atheist in the foxhole suddenly turn to God? Because he's scared. Why is he scared? Because he's in danger. What's going to happen when he's not scared anymore? He might very well become an atheist again. In other words, he has no relationship with God. He's got a relationship with himself. And he thinks, well, we may as well try God. I mean, it's possible that God <coughs> could help me. In which case, I'm going to pray. But that's got nothing to do with God. God there becomes a means to an end. What's the end in that situation? The person. Yaakov Avinu never saw himself as an end. Do you know who the end was? It was always God. God is number one, two and three, all the way through to any number that you can think of. God is at the center of his life. Mibchinat Adam HaPashut for an ordinary person, it's possible that they wouldn't engage. By the way, most people, the reason why they never think about God is because their life is just happening. I'm busy. I've got my job. I've got my family. You know, I've got to make sure that I make my mortgage payments. I need to go on vacation. I don't have time for God in my life. Right? And the truth is, I don't need God because even without God, I work, I have family, I go on vacation, and I pay my mortgage. In other words, if you don't relate your life to God, the necessity for God becomes very limited. But if God is at the center of your life, that's completely different. For an ordinary person whose life is going okay and has no reason to turn to God, 
then they don't turn to God. Lachen en lo siba lishtadel avura. Avo, kivun she Yaakov oved ze lishmo yidbarach mamash. The whole point of Yaakov Avinu is, and this was proven by, by what happened with the vision and what happened later on with Esav, it had nothing whatsoever to do with the circumstances of his life. Even when he knew everything is going to go extremely well because God is at his side, he had no reason to fear any situation that he found himself in, even if they were dire, and he found himself in some pretty dire situations. Nevertheless, it was never about that. If it's never about that, it's always to do with the fact that I've got to be a Yeresh I've got to daven. God put me here to daven, but everything's going to be okay. So what? What's that got to do with it? I still have to daven. When it's true to say that despite any understanding that we may have about the outcome and your place within that outcome, continues to do the work that he wants to do in terms of avodat Hashem, in terms of the service of God, in order to ensure God's will on this earth, if that's what they do, do you know what happens then? He proves that his whole purpose in life is to ensure that the outcome is whatever God wants it to be. In other words, it's got nothing to do with whether or not it's going to happen, not going to happen, or my particular role in this situation. My role here is, you know, you know, when you go to a rabbi and you say to the rabbi, will you pray for my child? Why should the rabbi pray for your child? You know, people go to the rabbis and they daven, they say, will you daven for my Why should the rabbi daven for my child? That's, and why would God listen to that prayer more than he'd listen to your prayer? Surely you're the parent. You should be praying for your child. Why would you go to the rabbi or to some mystic to pray for your child? I'm not going to go into that whole topic, but the idea here is, is, is very strong, it's very powerful. When somebody who doesn't even know who your child is, and there's no particular reason to pray for your child, prays for the health of your child, that's a very powerful thing. It means I want God to do whatever it is that God wants to do, but I want to somehow turn that into the service of God. It's not about me. It's not about my circumstances. It's about making sure that I am in the service of God at every given moment. Yaakov, Jacob has absolutely no personal interest in changing circumstances around him for his own personal gain. That's not what this is about. You know what his whole focus is? To make sure that whatever it is that God wants to happen on this earth happens. That is his purpose. That's what drives him. That's what motivates him. That's what um, energizes him. And that is, and that's why it's so counterintuitive. The more you reassure him that everything is going to be okay, the more you tell him everything's fine. I'm going to take care of you. It's totally counterintuitive. It works against the normal logic of a human being. The more he wants to pray, the more he wants to prove that it's not about that. It's not about that everything's going to be okay. Don't tell me everything. In fact, I don't even want to hear it. 
I don't even want to hear it. Don't even tell me that things are going to be okay. The more you tell me, the more I want to pray, the more I want to be devoted to God. Says the Rabbi Blumenzweig, using the Sfat Emet as his platform, that this is the idea of Yaakov Avinu being the Bechir Ha'avot. He is the ultimate servant of God. He is the ultimate version of how a human being should behave in the face of adversity, even when they're reassured that nothing is going to happen to them. That he is someone who understands the place of a person of faith in a physical world. Okay, that's the first piece. Let's look at the second piece. It's number six, source number six on page two. Yeah. So he, so the only the only way I can I understand the question. Okay, so he he, I thought of that. I think that what the what we're trying to say is that his relationship with God was so real that he was able to distance himself from any reassurance that he had received from God in order so that he could have the normal human emotions that one would have in these kinds of circumstances. Notwithstanding any reassurance that everything was going to be okay, he was still frightened. He managed to somehow, um, uh, I don't have the right word, to, to materialize his emotions that he would normally have had in those circumstances. So it was almost a superhuman effort. He was frightened. No normal person would be frightened. Why was he frightened? Because he knows that in order for him to have um, a prayerful, faithful relationship with God, he needs to be motivated by something. A human being in such circumstances is frightened. Why are you frightened? Everything's going to be okay. But he, he became... Um, more human than a human being. He, he kind of um, exaggerated his own ability to feel those emotions in, in spite of the fact that he didn't need to feel them in order for him to have the right, um, the right platform for him to pray that you would normally have in such circumstances. It's hard for us to relate to it. It's a simpler thing is it's like, you know, you have Masa, Yavis, and Levan, and Yaakov symbolized. Hashem is telling us in the end it's going to be okay. Doesn't mean you're going to not be able to have to walk through That's a, and also, and it's yeah. It's an, that's, an, that's another way of looking at it. Okay, difficult. but it's different. So the fear is real. I, I don't but he had been paid, received a personal assurance. It's not, it's not a general assurance. You know, it's, it's like the... Uh, you know, if you if you watch a movie, you know that there's people who have got minor roles in the movie going to get killed, but in the end, it's going to be a happy ending. So, you know, we may be the people who are in those minor roles. We may be minor actors in the big pastiche, in the big movie. In the end, everything's going to be okay, and Mashiach's going to come, but it's not going to help all the people who fell, fell you know, away on the sidelines during the course of that project. Yaakov Avinu wasn't that. He wasn't a minor actor. In, in a much bigger picture. He was the actor in the picture. Yeah, he was saying, I mean, and God has told him, you, Yaakov, are going to be okay. okay. Let, look, at, look at the words. He says, okay. 
Shmartikha, you, you, you. Somehow, despite those, he has managed to make a separation in his mind between that reassurance, which he 100% believed was going to happen, and the normal reaction of a human being in such circumstances, and he was able to feel fright and fear and trepidation and anxiety, which is a normal human reaction, therefore he could daven on that basis. So it was a superhuman effort to remain human in the face of, you know, a, a blank check that he had got from God. But he still wants to be the person of faith that God expects him to be. Let's look at number six. This is, by the way, I've put together, taken from various sources, um, and I've translated it all into English. According to the Medrash, Abraham signifies a mountain. Okay, so Avraham Avinu is a har. Why? Because it says, Bahar Hashem Yira'eh. When talking to Avraham Avinu about the Akedah, it says, On the mountain of God shall be seen. And that's why Avraham Avinu is associated symbolically with a mountain. Isaac symbolizes a field, says the Medrash. Why? Because it says, And Isaac went out to speak etc. in the field. That was when he met Rivka. Remember, Rivka came, she fell off the camel. And that's why Isaac is associated with a field. Jacob is referred to as a house. Why? Because it says, This is in this week's parasha, And I will call the name of that place Bet Kale. The word by it, Bet, he is referred to as a house. So Abraham Avinu is a mountain. Isaac is a field. And Yaakov, Jacob, is a house or a home. Bayit has a double meaning in Hebrew. It can either mean house or home. We need to understand what this means. And we also need to understand why Yaakov is called Bechir Ha'avot, as I've said earlier, the choice one of the patriarchs. According to the Kabbalah, the three patriarchs symbolize three funda fundamental aspects of the Sefirot. Do you remember that the... Um, the way the world is set up Kabbalistically, there are ten Sfirot, and there's three which are called Chesed, Gevura, and Tiferet. I've translated them. I don't want to tell you that this either of the or any of these three is a perfect translation because there's no perfect translation of any of these three words. Chesed I've translated as kindness, Gevura I've translated as power, and Tiferet I've translated as glory. Okay, don't hold me to those translations, but I have to give you some English word to associate with those three aspects of the Sefirot. Abraham signifies kindness, chesed, and love. Ultimate kindness is extraordinary. When one gives to others with no expectation of getting anything in return, it is beyond the regular topography of life. It bursts forth out of the ordinary, like a mountain, right? Like a har, rising majestically out of the ground and ascending to great heights. Similarly, true kindness transcends the ego and rises above personal narrow interests. That's Abraham Avinu. Meanwhile, Yitzchak, Isaac, symbolizes ultimate power, gvura, and strength, which leads to fear and dread. And indeed, the idea of the field is that it symbolizes the limitless 
borderless power of a vast open space, wide open, without any protection. So that's Yitzchak Avinu. Yitzchak is the Sadeh, and Avraham Avinu is the Har, the mountain. Both of these attributes represent two extremes. I think it makes sense, we all understand. It's natural for each extreme to have a parallel at its opposite end. And indeed, from Avraham Avinu, the man who epitomized kindness, emerged Yishmael, right? Who's Yishmael? He's exactly the opposite. He, exactly, he acted exactly in the opposite way to his father Avraham Avinu. So the reason why Yishmael emerges is because there's the ultimate extreme. Avraham in Chesed, therefore he has the extreme at the other end, which is Yishmael. Yitzchak is a man of the deepest level of the most profound faith, faith that results in Yirah. It's the Gvura that ends up in Yirah. A man of deep faith and fear of God. What happened? What emerged from Yitzchak? You know who emerged from Yitzchak? The utterly fearless and godless Esau, the opposite of his father, who feared God. Right? Yitzchak had feared God and, God, and Esau had no fear for God. Um, Yitzchak was constantly conscious of the dangers posed by God denial. Esau wasn't even conscious of that that there was a problem with God denial. Why? Because Yitzchak was the utter extreme of Gevurah, and therefore he produced an Esav. Now we're going to get to Yaakov Avinu. Jacob is symbolized by a home, a house, a bayit, a permanent, stable place where one can, one can live and manage one's life. And, you know, with all due respect to raw nature, one cannot survive very long without a roof over one's head, whether it is on a mountain or whether it is in a field. And Jacob's symbolism might appear to be a bit more prosaic. It's like a bit common a house. I mean, isn't more, it's a bit more exciting to be a mighty, vast mountain or very wide, open field. Like it's much more exciting. Like a, think of a prairie. Yitzchak Avinu is this huge expanse of land. What's Yaakov? A little house. Like, what's the big deal? Right? That's what you might think, that Abraham and Yitzchak are much more exciting in what they are represented by, what their symbols are. Yaakov's symbol is a bit pathetic. It's a house. doesn't matter how big a house is, it's just a box that people live in. But it is much more practical. It's much more real. Yaakov Avinu is much more real. Actually, if we take a look at Yaakov's life, it seems, on the face of it, that he led a very unstable life. He went through a lot of journeys and jolts and hardships and complex events. In which case, how is it suitable for him to be represented by a bite? Because the bite is the most stable of all the three symbols. And yet, he led a very unstable life. He didn't lead the life of a steady, stable home with a roof over his head. So let's go back and look at the Sefirot. Okay, remember I mentioned the Sefirot. Avraham and Chesed, if you look at the actual map, I don't have it here. If you look at map, you can look it up online. A map, you know, a diagram of the Sefirot, you'll see that Avraham, Chesed, is located on the right side of the Sefirot, while Yitzchak and Gvurah are located to the left. Okay, if you look at the diagram, Jacob and Tiferet is a combination of the two, and it's located right in the middle of those two. 
Jacob receives the best of both and merges them into one stable attribute that will outlast him and his family, his children, creating a bayit that will last for eternity. The whole point of a bayit is not the little box. It's the fact that it's a home. You know, when we, when we get married, we get married under a chuppah. Why? You want to create this a concept of a home. What do you wish Chatan and Kala when they get married? You're going to build a bayit ne'eman Yisrael. Like it's a sort of eternal blessing. It's not just your home, because your home will last however long your marriage lasts or until one of you dies. It might only be until you get divorced. But the bracha doesn't end there. If it's a bayit ne'eman, you're going to have children, and they're going to have children, they're going to have children, you're going to have great-great-grandchildren and, and descendants. That's the concept of a house. It's not something that is going to be damaged by the ravages of nature. You are going to be able to create something which is everlasting. That's Yaakov Avinu. He takes the extreme of the har and the extreme of the... Of the uh, um, Sadeh, he brings it together under the roof of a bayit and he creates that stability that is Yaakov Avinu. That's why he's the Bechir Ha'avot, the choice one. In fact, we're told that the first Beit HaMikdash, the first temple in Jerusalem, was like Avraham Avinu, right? It was the Har. And the second one was the Sadeh, was like Yitzchak. Both were destroyed. The third temple not yet built, is Yaakov Avinu. It's going to last forever. The third temple will express the middle line, which merges chesed and gvura, love and judgment. And it will therefore exist forever until the nations of the world say, this is a quote, it's a pasuk in Micha, in Micah. Lechu v'na'aleh el har Hashem. Let us go up to the mountain of God. El bet Elokei Yaakov, to the house of the God of Jacob. You see that? Bet Elokei Yaakov. Ve'yorenu midrachav. And learn from his ways. Ve'nelecha ba'orchotav. And follow his footsteps. The nations of the world will at some point realize that the bayit, the, the house of Yaakov that has been built on Har HaMoriah, on Temple Mount, is the ultimate source of strength for humanity on this world, and they too will become followers of God. They will, as it were, come on a pilgrimage to the house of Yaakov, or the God of Yaakov, which is in Jerusalem. Okay, finally, I'm going to look at Rabbi David Landau. Why did Yaakov have such a difficult life if he was the Bechir? He's the Bechir Ha'avot. Surely he should have a better life. Yaakov Avinu Nikra Befi Chazal Bechir Ha'avot. He's referred to as the choice one of, of the uh, patriarchs. Bechir. What does it mean, Bechir? If you're going to really analyze the meaning, Bechir, you could understand it to mean Bumuvan Shel Siyum, Sikum, Maskana, closure, end, completion, finale. That Yaakov Avinu was the culmination, as it were, of the patriarchs. 
When you reach Yaakov Avinu, now we're ready for action. Avraham was stage one, Yitzchak was stage two, and now we're stage three with Yaakov Avinu. We finally got there and the Jewish nation can be launched. You go from the particular into the universal, from the family, from the tribe, into the nation. When you have a house, a home, and you have a family, that is the beginning of a community. That's how it starts. Every, everyone has started. Avram Avinu was on his own. He had, he had whatever he had, and then he had Yitzchak. That was also quite a small, uh, um, you know, very limited number of people. It was only when you got to Yaakov that things began to expand. That's what it means, Bakhir Ha'avot. He brought this Avot stage of the Jewish nation, or the formation of the Jewish nation, to an end, and now we're going to launch the nation. Vayat Sorech Eloki was a, a divine requirement. She Yaakov Yered Lebitzrayim. That Yaakov himself needs to go to Egypt. Afilu b'shal shelaot shel barzal. Even if he has to be dragged there with chains of iron. Who ubeto him and his household? Vaachakach yetsem mimitzrayim betor am v'tzibur. As a result of that experience, they will emerge from Egypt as a nation and as a community, as a congregation. Yaakov Avinu hu hamesakem vahagomer et hakudusha meshuleshet shalavot. He's the one who crystallizes, who brings together all the aspects of the avot of Avram Yitzchak and himself into one very important whole. Al yedei hofaat hatzipuriyut vachlaliyut. He's the one who, through whom can emanate, through whom can come out this um, general, this universal nation, the Jewish nation. If we look at all the different, you know, very specific aspects, spiritual aspects, godly aspects of the patriarchs, if you're going to be very fair, you're going to see Avraham Avinu and Yitzhak Avinu, they display, you know, Elements of greatness um, and things that happen to them, like it's, you know, it's it's a complete, it's a, it's a totally different level. Ulumadzot Yaakov nirag lechorak misken. If you if you're going to look at the way Yaakov Avinu appears, it, it's almost like a bit of a nebuch, right? Everything goes wrong in his life. It doesn't matter how many times it goes right; it still goes wrong. Even the end of his life, the last seventeen years of his life, he spends in Mitzrayim. You know, Avram Avinu, everything he went through, eventually, you know, Sarah died, he got remarried, and he lived happily ever after. Whatever that may mean for, for one of the patriarchs. Yitzhak Avinu, okay, he had a tough life, but at the end of his life, he lived many, many years, and happy, you know, uh, it was a placid, um, undisturbed life. Yaakov Avinu literally never had a peaceful moment. It was, it was, it was really tough. He had a tough life. The whole Perashiotav, and every one of the parashiot that deal with him, mainly Vayetzem Vayishlach, mitchilav ad sof hakol malei sibuchim she'en kamotam. I mean, the guy goes through the type of trials and tribulations that you cannot possibly describe. I mean, you literally cannot imagine how a person can get through life. It doesn't matter how many things go well for him, still things go terribly wrong. En etzlo davar beli sibuchim. Literally, not one aspect of his life is without problems, without confrontations, without challenges. 
Haleda, his own birth, right? He has to grab hold of Esau's ankle in order to get out. Habachora, in order to receive his birthright. Habracha, to receive the blessing from Isaac and all the different aspects of his relationship with his brother Esau. Imrachel, to marry his beloved Rachel. Imleah, with his wife Leah, who's not so happy with him. Im Lavan with his father-in-law, his uncle Lavan. Im Dina, with his daughter Dina. Im Yosef, with Joseph and all these children. Every aspect of his life was full of challenges. You couldn't, it's, it's a drama that's worthy of a Hollywood movie. The truth is, as well, if you look at the lives of Abraham and Yitzchak, you can't fail to be impressed by their deep spirituality, that's kind of the elevated level of their lives in terms of the way they're related to God and the world around them. They're very impressive people, very, very impressive people. Shem Yusod Lechol Adorot, it's a foundation for every generation. Ulam, Al-Gabezeh, Anachnu Kulanu Mela'e Sibuchim V'Nifkashim V'Sibuchim B'Chol Mahalech Ha-Historia Shelanu. The truth is, while we can relate to that, and it's very, very beautiful, it kind of is very remote as well. That's not the way our lives are. Who could say that we, any of us is like Avraham Avinu or like Yitzchak Avinu? We're not really like them. They're very remote, very spiritual, very holy people, but they're not us. That's not the way our lives unfold. Our lives are full of problems and full of challenges and full of difficulties and bumps in the road. That's the fact. That's, that's, that's the reality of it. Abraham may be very great, and he may be a patriarch, and the founding patriarch. But what's he got to do with us? Yitzchak may be very holy. He almost was sacrificed at the Akedah. No one has ever been in a holier moment than him in, in, the, in the course of all humanity. But that's not me. It doesn't relate to me. Because in general, the fact is, a human being, every single person that we know, his life and his, his situation is full of challenges and bumps in the road. Yeah, problems, challenges. Wrinkles. You know, you know what it means? Like, nothing smooth. Nothing in life is smooth. And the truth is, you can't ever forget it. You, you, you've got to face up to that reality. You know, I remember my father had on his desk, he had an office in the West End, and on his desk was a little desk sign. It said, just as I was about to make ends meet, somebody moved the ends. You know, that's how life, that's really what life is, isn't it? Like, you just, everything's coming together, it's just perfect, and just by tomorrow, 9 a.m., I won't have to worry again in the rest of my life. What happens then? Something else. Something else comes up. Yesh ma'amar chazal ala pasuk, yiten bekos eno yitalech b'mesharim. If you look at the cup, um, if you understand the cup, you will yitalech b'mesharim, shikur what is, what is this 
you know, when somebody's drunk, how, how is that person, what is, the, what is the frame of mind of somebody who's intoxicated with alcohol? What are they feeling? By the way, why do people drink? What is the obsession with drinking alcohol or taking any kind of mind-bending intoxicant? Why do you do it? Because life seems so much better when you're intoxicated. Has anything changed? Has anything in your life changed if you drank three glasses of wine? Absolutely not. The only thing that's changed is you've got an intoxicant running through your blood and into your brain, and it makes you think that everything's okay. But nothing has changed. That's what it means to be intoxicated. It's actually very confusing, and it's distracting. It's suddenly obscures all the terrible things that are going on in the world. I'm intoxicated. I don't think, you know, you see somebody you hate, you hug them and you tell them I love you. And you hear about problems that are happening and everything's going to be okay. Nothing's a problem. And you forget that the whole world is at war. It's everything's great. Why? Is everything great? No, I had a bottle of wine. I had half a bottle of vodka. Oh, everything's marvelous. But that's not the way the world really is. Somehow... When somebody behaves in a way that removes themselves from the reality of the world, that's not what God wants from them. That's not how we should behave as human beings. We need to behave in such a way that we are real. Reality. We can't be intoxicated. The um, interaction between the spiritual world and the physical world is one of great tension, one which causes sparks to fly. And we need to know this. By the way, the more spiritual you are, the more problems there are going to be because we live in a physical, material world. We need to know at the same time, despite all the challenges that we face, that God will never abandon humanity and will never abandon the world. He has chosen us, those who have chosen him. He has chosen from those who have not chosen, from among those who have not chosen him. Us who have a relationship with him are the ones who will benefit from that relationship. And through all the challenges that we may face, it's the light of our relationship with God that will shine for us so that we can get through it. You know, they've done so many studies, and I, you know, every few months I read another study about how people of faith cope in times of stress much better than people who don't have any faith. And that people of faith are much more charitable than people who don't have any faith. And people of faith have, have a much greater hope for the future than people who don't have any faith. If you don't believe in God, you have no confidence in the future. Now, why should I bother having children? Have you ever met an atheist who tells you, why should I bother having children? Life is so difficult. 
You know, I, I, I sometimes get into discussion with an atheist. I say, what are you talking about? If, you know, your parents could have felt that way. Were they atheists? Why is it that people who are religious have confidence in the future? And that they're truly religious and have great self-belief and have belief in people. Not everybody's terrible. If you're truly religious, you believe that there's a, a positive spark in every human being and in every situation and things are always going to get better. You have a belief in the future. Why? Because that is the light of faith shining through the darkness of the Sibuchim that infect and inhabit the material world. The Torah, the Bible, the study of Torah, the Talmud, is something which can guide us through all the challenges that we may experience in life. Simply having that as a foundation of who we are. And by the way, that's why Yaakov Avinu is the Bechir Ha'avot. Why is he Bechir Ha'avot? Because if we're going to look for a mentor in our own lives, Abraham is not going to be our mentor. Yitzchak is not going to be our mentor. Our mentor is going to be somebody who was holy and spiritual and connected to God and came in direct contact with God and nevertheless suffered the same realities that we all suffer. And it never ended. He died at the age of 147 years old and at no moment in his life did he have peace. At no moment in his life did he not find himself challenged by circumstances. And yet he remained faithful right through until the very end. That is the mentor. That's the Bechir Ha'avot for us. That is somebody from whom we can take great and profound inspiration. We'll leave it here for today.